have a question for you, brethren. Do we have any chocoholics among us? Uh, honest people. So, yeah. Yes. You know, chocolate, uh, uh, Mr. Apartian says everything goes better with chocolate. If I go to his office with a problem, he'll say, Davey, sit down, have some chocolate. <laughs> and it seems to go better. But most of us like chocolate, and most of us were introduced to it by Hershey products. You know, the, the chocolate bars, the chocolate syrup, the cocoa. Now, the Hershey Company was founded by Milton Hershey in 1894. Uh, after years of being in the, the candy business, he perfected making milk chocolate. Now, through hard work and vision and knowledge of the candy business, he built one of the great fortunes in America in the early 1900s. The name Hershey meant chocolate. Everybody knew what that was. Now, the company was so well established, they so heavily dominated the market that they saw no need to advertise their products uh, any longer. After all, Hershey was chocolate. Everybody knew that. Uh, so why spend money on advertising and promotion? Well, they settled back and expected the money to keep rolling in. They, ca they became complacent. What happened? What was the result? Well, they almost destroyed the company. The competition around the world gobbled up a huge share of the market while they were being complacent. Uh, they had dominated the market, but they lost that. Now, happily for the Hershey family, they woke up. <laughs> they countered and they survived. But the lesson was very plain. Complacency, uh, that is smug satisfaction, self-satisfaction, can be ruinous. Now, if you think about it, if you look into it, if you consider what's happened down through history, more battles have been lost, more enterprises have failed, more marriages have been destroyed by complacency than almost any other cause. And this applies to churches and to Christians as well. It's something we need to be on guard against. Now, we could spend the day looking at specific examples of this, and I want to look at a couple more. We won't look at a lot, but I think it illustrates the point that I want to make today. On December 24th, 1776, George Washington, General George Washington, crossed the Delaware River. You all know the story. You've seen the painting as they go across the Delaware River. <clears throat> Braving bitter cold weather, sleet and snow, with ice flows in the river, with 2,400 men. They were wet and exhausted and cold. Now, after crossing the river, they marched nine miles in that cold weather and the condition they were in to Trenton, New Jersey, arriving there in broad daylight. Now, the Hessian mercenary soldiers under Colonel Rawl had partied all night. Hey, it was Christmas Eve. So they had partied, and they were uh, asleep in their comfortable quarters. <laughs> they knew no one would be so stupid as to attack in such bad weather. And on Christmas Day, after all, everyone knew that these fierce fighters could uh, defeat them. So they were asleep in their bunks. Well, Washington's ragtag army defeated the Hessians in a matter of a few minutes. And how did they do that? Because the Hessians had become complacent. They had become overconfident. And it cost them the battle. In our own history, a little down further in time, look at Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Uh, FDR said, a day that would live in infamy. Now, how did that happen to the United States? The United States had become complacent. 
How did 9-11 occur? What is it, six years ago now almost, when the Twin Towers came down and the Pentagon was bombed? How did that happen? A major factor was that our nation had become complacent. Now, just a few years ago, Kmart was king. Kmart was everywhere. There was a big store right over here, you'll, re you'll remember. And they didn't pay much attention to a little guy from the hills of northwest Arkansas <laughs> who was building stores in small towns. I mean, what could that matter, right? What could that matter? But today, Kmart's emerging from bankruptcy and Walmart's king. So you see that the tables turn. Now, by the way, Walmart will one day stumble, probably for the same reasons. Probably because they'll become complacent. So we can see, brethren, some real vivid examples in real life of what can happen if we become smugly self-satisfied or complacent. Now, does the Bible address this subject? Is this something that the Bible would talk about? Is there important instruction for us in God's Word? Particularly as we are in this Holy Day season, as all of you look forward to the day of Pentecost. Well, actually, Scripture has much to say about it. And there are lessons that we can learn. And it records some really poignant examples from which we can learn. The title of my sermon today is Stir Up the Spirit. Now, turn back to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> After the Passover meal and the instruction that Christ gave the disciples, we find this account. Matthew 26. We'll begin in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me Three times. <clears throat> so as we read this, let's read verse 35. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So here we see that Peter and the other disciples were very self-certain. Very smug. They were sure of their spiritual strength. Couldn't happen. They couldn't be shaken. No way. And yet Jesus told them what was going to happen. Now the story continues and gives us some insights. And going on in verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He knew what he was facing. It was a very difficult time for him, I'm sure. Verse 38, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He wanted some companionship at that time. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40, Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. So here he needed their companionship. He wanted them to be praying with him, and they were sleeping. And said to Peter, What? 
Could you not watch with me one hour? He says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, the second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he went away. He left them, went away, and prayed the third time using the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So here we see that they had the opportunity to be with Christ at this incredibly difficult time for him. And instead of praying fervently with him and doing these things, they were asleep. They, they were weary. They, they were weak physically, and they went to sleep. Now, let's get the rest of the story. Drop down now to verse 69. Now, Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it, a bald-faced lie. He denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're saying. And then when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him. And said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. You know, Jesus said, Swear not at all. And here's Peter swearing. He denied with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. I don't know if Peter had a southern accent or not, but he, he had an accent. <laughs> He had an accent. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So here we see that the smug Peter failed the test. He knew that he couldn't be shaken. He was very self-confident, and he failed the test. But happily, look at verse 75. Apparently, he did get the point. He learned the lesson. It said, so he went out and wept bitterly. So this probably was a turning point in Peter's life when he realized that he was not as powerful and strong as he thought that he was. And he, he repented. He went out and wept bitterly. Now, had Peter prayed instead of sleeping, he probably would have had the spiritual strength to have been brave. There's a lesson there for us, brethren, that we have to continually pray. We have to continually stay close to God. We have to continually be on our toes, as it were, to be alert to the things that we should be doing. <clears throat> Turn over to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul gave some admonition that certainly fits here. Something that you all know, and yet... The purpose, obviously, of Sabbath sermons and so on is to be reminded. If I bring you any new scriptures, please throw me out. <laughs> there aren't any, and you're all students of the Bible. So, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. So, it's an admonition to us to be very careful not to be overconfident. And it's a human trait. It's a part of human nature 
to, to do that. And so it's, it's very good for us to be on guard. Now, let's look at a parable that's very revealing. Turn over to Matthew 25. You know this well, but let's look at it today again. Hopefully in a fresh way. Matthew 25. <clears throat> Matthew 25. We'll begin in verse 1. And here we see the parable of the ten virgins. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now all ten of them were looking uh, for, expecting the bridegroom. They all were on a level playing field at this point. They were expecting this and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Verse 2. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Now, obviously, we want to be in the category of the wise. And as we read the parable, we'll see why they were wise and why they were foolish. Hold your place there. And let's, let's look at uh, uh, something about wisdom for us as Christians. Hold your place in Matthew 25 and turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3. We'll look at lots of scriptures today, brethren, because they tell the story and make the point that I want to make this afternoon. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Actually, let's begin in verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. Paul writing to Timothy said, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Where does wisdom come from, brethren? It comes from God's Word. The fear of God, of course, is the beginning of wisdom. And it's a lifetime pursuit of studying God's Word. You understand things at 30 that you couldn't understand at 20. You understand things at 40 that you couldn't have understood at 30. Life's experiences and the things that we go through as we study God's Word and as we grow in spirit and in truth... We, we, we uh, learn things that we may have overlooked before. So we rehearse these things and we review these things throughout our lifetime. Because as Paul told Timothy, that the Scriptures are able to make you wise. And we want to be like those wide, wise virgins. Now, uh, it also talks about the five foolish. Let's turn back to, hold your place, turn back to Ecclesiastes. Solomon, who was very wise... What about this? Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You know, we always want the wisdom of Solomon. Well, it is available to us in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and so it's good for us to study those. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Then I, he wrote, Then I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. And as we'll see in the parable, these foolish ones are in the dark, you see. Verse 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Again, they, as we see in the parable, had no oil on their lamps as we read it. Yet I perceive myself that the same event happens to them all. So as we consider the wise and the foolish, just some scriptures that kind of help us focus on that. Now we go on in Matthew 25. Please go back there. Matthew 25, 
Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took no took their lamps and took no oil with them. Now <clears throat> that's without oil it's like a flashlight without batteries. <laughs> what were they thinking? You see, it's it's a vessel, it's an empty vessel. It doesn't do them much good. Verse four, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So they uh, used some planning and were alert to the fact that if they were going to use their lamps, they would need oil. Now look at verse 5. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Notice that all of them slept. They were physical, weak. They, they all slept. I'm sure, brethren, that as we look around the church today, there's, at some point in time, all of us have been asleep spiritually and uh, have awakened at, at different times. And happily, we are here today. But certainly, back in this parable, all of them slept. They slumbered and slept. Now look at verse 6. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. So, uh, here we go. What happened when they least expected it? At midnight. What kind of an hour is that? <laughs> you see, and yet, that's when it happened. And they, they weren't expecting it. And when they got the call, then all those virgins arose. They all got up, you see. They all awakened and trimmed their lamps. Now, this word trim means to, to put it in order. They're up. Now they're, they're ready to, to do what they're there to do. And they got the lamp ready to give light. There's some preparation involved in getting that done. <clears throat> and then in verse 8, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Fire lamps are going out. The gall of some people. Think about that. They're there, no oil, and the event comes and they say, give us your oil. Uh, a lot of gall. A lot of, a lot of nerve to do that. Look at verse 9. But the wise answered saying, no. Here they wisely refused. No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell. And buy for yourselves. You see, brother, the point is there are some things you have to do for yourselves. That was the point. They could not give them their oil and then there wouldn't have been enough for either. So <clears throat> we go on then in verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with them to the wedding and the door was shut. So here we see an opportunity missed. This little window of opportunity, and now it's gone. They have missed the opportunity to be a part of this wedding party. You see, the message is plain. It's like the fellow who, uh, when his ship came in, he was at the train station, you see. <laughs> they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. They, they weren't there, and they missed the opportunity. And certainly we have to be alert to our opportunities. Now look at verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also. They've gone now to get the uh, oil. And said, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Help us. We're only a little late. We're only a little late. I mean, what's, what's a little oil among friends? You see, they, what's the big deal? And yet, let's see what it says. <clears throat> In verse 11, it says, But he answered and said, Assuredly, 
I say to you, I do not know you. The answer was no, you can't come in. Now, brethren, hold your place there and turn back to Matthew 7. Let's look at another account that really reinforces this. Matthew 7. Hold your place in Matthew 25 and go to Matthew 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Brethren, uh, Christ is interested in more than lip service. Lord, Lord just won't get it. I mean, if you look around today, the airwaves are full, crowded with people talking about love the Lord. It's big business. Christian music uh, is incredibly popular. The, the, uh, we have whole channels that are, are on television and on radio and, and companies that are built on these sorts of things. But none of this will cut it with God or with Jesus Christ unless it contains the truth. They can be sincere. They can be fervent, but unless they have the truth and the oil of the Holy Spirit, God says, I never knew you. As it goes on, He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? A lot of people are out there having fun with prophecy. They get it wrong. Uh, because they don't understand the identity of Israel and other important truths. But they're out there prophesying in Jesus' name. Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So it's clear, brethren, that there is a standard. There is something that Jesus Christ wants us to do. And that's to stick to the trunk of the tree, to put into practice these things that have been revealed to us. And to not be lawless, but to be law-abiding people. Go back to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, as we go on. Verse 12, Matthew 25, He said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. You notice Jesus Christ is consistent. He doesn't waver. It's it's uh, the other passage. He said, "I don't know you." And here he says, "I don't." He's consistent. There's something that he requires. Look at verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. He's saying here, don't be complacent. Be prepared at any time, at any hour. And the indication is it will be when you least expect it. It'll it'll catch us off guard because that's what the Scripture says. Now, brethren, as we consider this and we think about the parable of the virgins and the oil and the lamps and so on, we see the obvious analogy of the Holy Spirit, something that we all need, something that God uses to do His will. The question is, who supplies the oil? He said, go get the oil, right? Who supplies the oil? It's something we should know. Turn over to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 9. Luke 11, verse 9. 
It says, So I say to you, Jesus Christ speaking here, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. You notice those are action words. There is some action required on the part of us as God's people. There's something we have to do. We have to ask and seek and knock. And he says, if we do that, it will be open to us. Verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Verse 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Now that would be a dirty trick. You know, your little child's hungry and you give him a rock. You know, that, that, that's just not natural. That's, that's something you wouldn't do. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Instead of something good to eat, something that will bite him? No. You see, that, that's, he, he's using a really vivid example here, I think. Verse 12, or if he asks for an egg, will you offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? To those who ask Him. Brethren, who provides the Spirit? Who provides the oil? Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father provide the oil. So my admonition is to uh, ask for the Holy Spirit daily in your prayers. Don't neglect to ask for that gift so that you will have the Holy Spirit that you need to carry on. Now we know that David was someone who was a man after God's own heart. Turn over to Psalm 51. And we'll see that David asked. Now, this is David's prayer of repentance. David had committed heinous sins. And he repented bitterly. And in Psalm 51, Psalm of Repentance, verse 10, we see David's heartfelt plea. Psalm 51, verse 10. David wrote, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. A spirit that doesn't waver back and forth. A spirit that is not weak, you see. But a spirit that is steadfast. It's talking about God's Holy Spirit. Renew that within me, he said. And so, brethren, that should be your prayer. And I know that it is. I know that you do ask each day. And so be persistent and and ask for that and God will supply it. Now... The question, rhetorical question is, is he able to supply it? He says, ask and I will give it to you. Is he able to supply it? Well, you know, the Bible is full of great stories. And there's a great story that illustrates that, yes, he is able to provide it. Turn to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. Here we see a story about Elijah. Now today, even... Thousands of years later, a lot of people spend an awful lot of time trying to figure out who Elijah is. (laughs) Well, this is the first Elijah. He's clearly identified here. Let's read about this. And it illustrates, the the, answers the question that I ask. Is is God able to supply this oil, this spirit? 1 Kings 17, verse 9. Here we, again, talking to Elijah. He said, God says to him, Arise, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now the setting is this. There was a severe famine. There was a severe food shortage. And it even impacted here the prophet. 
And so he told him to go to Zarephath and that a widow would provide for him. That's interesting. Normally we provide for the widows. And here the table is turned. The widow is going to provide for the prophet. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. Here's the lady out gathering firewood. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink it. And as she was going to get it, she complied. He called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So he was pretty bold. (laughs) He wanted bread and water. Verse 12, So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. This is all we have. A little flour, a little oil, and then we're going to die. We don't have anything. This is it. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. Again, the prophet is being bold here. This woman's facing death. And he says, go and do what you said, but but bring me uh, a cake first and then have some. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Now, at this point, the lady could have said, right, <laughs> right, and not done what was she was requested to do. But she apparently had faith. She knew that something special was going on. Verse 15, so she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. Now, she only had a little, but she was willing to share Verse 16, the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through by, spoke by Elijah. So, brethren, the, the point that I take from this story is that if you obey God, your oil will not run dry. He is able to supply. He sustained the widow. He sustained the prophet. And He is able to do that for you. If we are obedient, God will not let your oil. And here it's talking about a physical oil in this story, but that is a picture of His Holy Spirit. The oil of the Holy Spirit. Now, brethren, why is it important that we have the Spirit? Why is it important that we have that? We know the answer, but let's look anyway. Turn over to Zechariah. One of those... Minor prophets, as they're called, they didn't know they were minor, you see. They're really the short prophets. They're important, but they're shorter in length. Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. Why is it important that we have the Holy Spirit? Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
How does God accomplish His will? Is it through great armies? Is it through great power? No, it's through His Holy Spirit. How did He create this vast universe that's so hard for us to comprehend? You hear the distances, you hear uh, the, the vastness of it, and it's just hard to wrap your mind around it. How did God create all that? Through the power of His Holy Spirit. And brethren, we certainly need the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's will in our lives. On our own, we'll be like Peter. We'll fall flat on our face. But if we have God's Spirit, if, if we are using it, if we are bearing fruit of it, then God can accomplish His will through us by the power of His Holy Spirit. It's something that you all are aware of. I think particularly it's appropriate this time of year and this season to think about it and to focus on it and to really uh, look at what the Bible says about it and try to meditate on that. Now, as we think about this, is our approach to God's way important? Is the way we approach it as an individual, as, as Christians, as members of God's church? Do our actions determine our spiritual state? Do we have a stake in this? Well, let's, let's look at some things. First, let's look at the negative side. Now, we won't end up on the negative side, but it's, it's, a good, it's good to look at both sides of the coin. Let's look at the negative side. First, turn to, um, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. <clears throat> Let's start actually in verse 16 get the context. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Paul writing here says to the church at Thessalonica there, he's Thessalonica, he says in verse 16, Rejoice always. Now sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes you don't feel like rejoicing, right? Uh, you have uh, good days and bad days. You know, I like to say some days are diamonds, some days are stones. <laughs> but he says rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. There shouldn't be long gaps when we're not praying to God. We should be praying to God every day. Verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then verse 19 is what I want to focus on here. He says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. The, the Greek word here means to extinguish, to put out. You know, like putting out the fire. You can quench a fire. You can put it out. You can quench the Holy Spirit. He says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So it seems that our actions do impact how we handle the Holy Spirit or what God can do with us because we can put it out. We can quench it. And he says, the prophet says, do not do that. Let's look at another thing that we can do. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 29. It says in Ephesians 4, 29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, 
But what is good for necessary edification or building up that it may impart grace to the hearers? So we need to be careful uh, what we say and how we say it, realizing that our words do impact other people. Sometimes we might tend to be negative or to say the wrong thing. You know, the, the old saying that we learned as kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, that's a lie. Words do hurt. And once they're spoken, it's, it's difficult to, to change it, hard to call them back. So we should be careful about what we say. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. And, of course, we should be building up. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. This, this Greek word here means to, to cause distress. We should not uh, be grudgingly to other people in, in, in dealing with that. It's not something that, that we should do. We should not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important as we think about this that we can do that. We could quench the Spirit. We could cause grief or grieve the Holy Spirit and then lose the impact that it has in our life in a right way. And certainly we need it. And we don't want to quench it or to put it out. Now, as we think about this, sometimes people worry about that. They think, well, maybe God will give up on me. And yet we have a promise, a very important principle that I take great comfort in, and I hope that you will too. Turn over to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. Paul writing here to the church at Rome says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, if, uh, if you were in the insurance business, you see, you'd say that's guaranteed, renewable, non-cancelable. <laughs> you see, God will not give up on you. Now, we can give up on God. We can walk away. We can quench the Spirit. There are things we can do. But once God calls us, He says that it's irrevocable. God won't leave you or forsake you, but you can leave Him. And many, some certainly have made a conscious decision to walk away from God's truth, to walk away from the way of life to which they're called. And you see, they quench the Spirit and they grieve the Holy Spirit. But if we are doing our part, God will never forsake us or give up on us for sure. Now, is it really possible that we could quench the Spirit? Is it, is it possible that by our attitudes and our actions to cause the light of God's Spirit to go out? Let's look at some scriptures that demonstrate that. Turn back to Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13. Verse 9. I know you all enjoy reading the Proverbs. You may not think about the Holy Spirit and the, the theme that we have today and in this season. But there's a lot there. And in Proverbs 13, verse 9, it says, The light of the righteous rejoices. Think about the virgins, you see, with oil in their lamps. They could, they could have light. It says, But the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Think about the unwise virgins, you see, who didn't carry uh, any oil. So it, it's obvious. Uh, it says here to be put out. 
In Hebrew, that means to be extinguished or, or, or quenched. It's the same word that's used in the Greek of the same meaning. So it is possible for if, if we uh, disobey God and if we do things that He would consider wicked, that our light will go out. That is possible. Turn over. Uh, actually, it's just repeated in, in verbatim in Proverbs 24, verse 20. We won't turn there. Proverbs 24, verse 20, it says that the lamp of the wicked will be put out. So it is possible that we could, after having the Spirit, then either quench it or grieve it. Now, let's look at an example of God being grieved. We have an example of that. Turn back to Genesis. You know this account. Turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Fascinating story. We'll just look at this example, illustrating that God's way, God can be grieved. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that um, there were bad times on the earth. Now it came to pass, Genesis 6 verse 1, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, and you can read all the things that were going on. It was not a pretty picture. It was a bad time. In Genesis 6 verse 6, and it says, And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. Now, we don't ever take God by surprise. I mean, I don't think He was taken by surprise here, but He was still unhappy that it worked out this way. The grieved in Hebrew means to be displeased, to be sorry, as it says here, that He was sorry. So it is possible, certainly, for God to be unhappy and to be displeased with that situation. Now, Jesus Christ makes it plain that an attitude of complacency grieves Him. That's not an attitude that He wants us to have. Now, we read these Scriptures often, but with this in mind, turn back to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. I suppose that today, and we look at Matthew 24 is the chapter that's read most often, and this is probably number two. Okay, we go here a lot, but let's look at it today. Revelation 3, verse 14, And the angel, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So this is being spoken by Jesus Christ, the Creator. Verse 15, He says, I know your works. Again, we never take God by surprise. He knows what's going on. He knows our thoughts and our works and our deeds. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Incredible. I mean, it's grie- he's grieved to the point that he just spits it out. He's not, he doesn't want that. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And this is talking spiritually. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So they see themselves in one light as rich and having need of nothing. And yet God sees their true condition as being spiritually naked and wretched and, wretched and, and miserable. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, 
that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. Verse 19, he says, many as, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So when we're going through chastening, when we're going through correction, it's not because God hates us. It's because he loves us and he's willing to do this. And then what is his attitude? What is his admonition? What does he want us to do? Therefore, be zealous and repent. It's the classic scripture on this subject. You need to know it all well. Now, brethren, it's very important, I think, that we consider this. It's not our job to label any group or any person as Laodicean. You know, we tend to do that. We love labels. This guy's a conservative, and this guy's a liberal, and this guy is this or that or the other. We like to hang labels on people, and sometimes those labels are very hurtful. You know, we look on the outside. God looks on the inside. So it's not our job to label any group or person as Laodicean. Our task is to be sure that as individuals that we are not Laodiceans. You're the only person you're responsible for. You see, that you are not Laodiceans and that I'm not Laodiceans in our approach to spiritual matters. It's very important that we be zealous and repent. And certainly to do that, we have to have God working with us. Very, very important. Brethren, in our daily walk as Christians, we must put this verse 19 into practice of being zealous and having a repentant attitude. Because every day, as human beings, we'll make a mistake. We'll misspeak. We'll misthink. We'll do something that at the end of the day, when we're kind of rolling it over in our mind, we'll say, ah, I can't believe I said that. And go to God and ask for His repentance. And, and to give Him to give us repentance and to be zealous in what we're doing. Now, those are the negative things. I told you we would look at those. Let's, what positive things can we do? You're all positive people, regardless of what Mr. McNair says. You see, I'm, I know. I, what positive things can we do? Paul wrote to Timothy about this. Turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul wrote to Timothy, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What was he talking about? What, what was that gift? It was the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands at baptism. So he's reminding him that he has the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God wants us to be sound-minded. He wants us to, to think right thoughts and make right decisions and to be guided by His Spirit. And if we are guided by His Spirit, that's what we'll be doing. And certainly there are things that concern us in the world that we live in. We do have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves in our goings and comings as we go around and do our business and take care of things. We have to do that. But we should not live in fear. You know, Jesus talked to the disciples and He told them that there were going to be wars and rumors of war and He described all these horrible conditions. And then He said, See that you be not troubled. So 
I think the admonition is there, that we are not to be fearful. We have to have concerns. We have to have wisdom. We have to conduct ourselves and, and, and take precautions and so on. But we should not live in fear. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It means to stir up. Stir up, the Greek means to rekindle. Now you campers, and I'm sure we have a few campers among us, those younger campers, the older your bones, the, the less likely you are to sleep on the ground. Okay. Um, I see some hoary heads out there, and they're probably not camping. It's the young ones that are camping. But you know, when you build a campfire, and the next morning, and it's just, uh, it looks like it's ashes, but when you stir it, it will rekindle and, and come into flame. And this is what it means here, to stir up, to rekindle the Holy Spirit. Brethren, you can do that, and I hope that you will. Brethren, as God's people, we need to be stirred up in a right way. Not complacent, not sleepy, spiritually. And I know you hear this a lot, but I think it's important, particularly when we realize we live in the Laodicean age. A, uh, an age when it's not cool. To be hot. You know, it's just people want to be laid back. And, and, and yet God says we're not to be that way. Turn over to Proverbs. Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24. <clears throat> Proverbs 24. Verse 30. Now, as we read this, I, I think you realize we think of this as having a physical application, and it does, but it also has a spiritual application. So let's read it with that in mind. Proverbs 24, verse 30. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. I'm sure you've driven past places that have been neglected and you see uh, the fences down or the, the, the barn roof partially collapsed because it's late. To the, it just in a deplorable condition. And that's what he's describing here. Verse 32, When I saw it, I considered it well and looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Remember the disciples sleeping when they should have been praying. And it's so easy for us to get to a point where we, we're, we're not, you know, we just don't have the drive to, to spend the time in prayer and so on that we need. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler. Um, uh, you know, somebody who's looking for an opportunity to break in. You know, people cruise the neighborhoods looking for a place that looks abandoned or looks like an opportunity. So that's what it's talking about here. So your poverty shall come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So rather than it, it does certainly have a physical meaning, but it, it has a spiritual application. And that if we are not diligent in our spiritual matters, then we will have spiritual poverty. We will not have the spiritual riches that we need to accomplish the things that God wants us to do. Um, and you know, just as in physical poverty, it makes it difficult for you to accomplish worthwhile things. You know, money's just a tool. doesn't bring you happiness. does get you a better grade of misery. But you are cold. Come on. 
But the point is that money is a tool. And if you have it, you can serve others and do those things. And it's the same thing in spiritual riches. If you are spiritually strong, then you're able to be a good example and to serve others in a spiritual way. And it does require diligence. It does require tending to spiritual business, as it were. And I know that all of you do those things. But I hope you'll think about that in a spiritual application. Now, Paul stirred up the church at Rome. Turn back to Romans 13. It's recorded for us so that we can be stirred up as well as we consider stirring up the Spirit. Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 11. Paul wrote long ago, Romans 13, verse 11, And do this knowing the time that it is now high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Brethren, all of us can say that. Some of you have been a part of the church for 30, 40 years, maybe longer. And whatever your circumstance you see, your salvation is closer now than when you first believed. He, this was a long time ago, and certainly we know in, in historical um, perspective, we're closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, he says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, and my margin says decently, being a good example in our neighborhoods, in our business, in all of our actions. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Then this doesn't mean that you shouldn't take care of yourself physically, your food and clothing and shelter and hopefully many blessings, physical blessings. But this is talking about inordinate desire, and lustful things. And don't make that our priority. It's all about priorities. And we know that if we do the spiritual things, God will certainly provide for us physically. Paul urged them at that time to be fervent and to do the right things. And so, brethren, today, here we are, I urge you to be fervent and to do the right things. Now, he not only stirred up the church at Rome, he also stirred up the Corinthian church. Turn back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the resurrection chapter, but there's an awful lot here. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Let's start in, in verse 33. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Paul said to them at that time, Do not be deceived. Don't let anybody trick you. Don't be fooled, he says. Evil company corrupts good habits. No, rather than choose your friends carefully, do your friends build you up or pull you down? Are your friends uh, helping you, as the Scripture says, like iron sharpens iron? Or is that person or group, whatever it might be, uh, having you involved in things or keeping you from progressing and growing physically and spiritually. Evil company corrupts good habits. It's a spiritual principle. Look at verse 34. He says, awake. He Notice he didn't say doze off. He says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. 
For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He was, he was correcting them pretty strongly. And I don't see any reason for strong correction here, but the admonition is very, very plain. We should be awake to righteousness. We should be alert to the needs of our brethren. We should be alert to what we can do to put God's ways into practice. Now, brethren, we're trumpeting this um, on the world, to the world, on over 200 television stations. We're telling them, awake! If you listen to Dr. Meredith or Mr. Ames or to the other presenters, uh, it's a message that will stir you up. It's a message that's not complacent. It's not about uh, just stopping and smelling the roses and having a nice day. Well, that's not wrong. Our message is to awake to righteousness. And I hope that you're all happy and pleased to be a part of that because it certainly is the only work that's really doing it to the extent that we are. We do it on television, on the radio, on the Internet, in our publications. You heard in the announcements about how many uh, millions of pieces of literature have gone out since we, since we began. And we have much more to do. We have much more to do. But that's the work that you are a part of. But not only does it apply to the people out there that we're trying to reach, it also applies to us, that we should awake to righteousness. And God expects His people to be awake, focused, fervent about His way of life and His work. It's really important. And I'm sure that you're all aware of that. And you're here today and you're all fervent in spirit. Now, we do not serve a complacent, lukewarm God. He makes that very plain. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews. Great book. If you haven't read Hebrews 11 lately, read it during this Holy Day season. And be stirred up. But we'll look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Paul writes here, Therefore, Hebrews 12, verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and brethren, we shouldn't be easily shaken. Some people are. First, bump in the road, they walk away, they get, they get shaken. He says, We are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And then look at this next verse. For our God is a consuming fire. You'll notice He's not lukewarm. (laughs) He is a consuming fire. It's like a furnace. You see, God is hot. God is a consuming fire. Brethren, we have the annual holy days to remind us of these important things. And we're looking forward to one of those tomorrow on the day of Pentecost. Now, as we do these holy days, as we go through these things, let's do so with renewed interest. For many of you, you've kept these days for a long time. But let's do it with renewed interest, with an attitude of being stirred to learn and to grow even more than we may have done, And even though we maybe have done these things for many, many years. Turn over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. 
Here we have the words of Jesus Christ. Let's start in verse 34. I hope you'll, in your own personal Bible study, read all of the parable, all of these words. But we'll start in verse 34 of Luke 12. He says, For where your treasure is, Jesus Christ speaking, there your heart will be also. You know, sometimes when I look around and I see people whose hearts are not in the work, whether it be in our church or in these other little groups right here, the living room churches, whatever, and they're not involved in the work, for them I know it's a pocketbook issue. It's a pocketbook issue. How do I know that? Because Jesus says right here, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if their heart's not in the work, it's a pocketbook issue. They're not supporting the work. They're not putting their treasure there. Or if they, if they were, their heart would be there. Verse 35, he says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Do you have this mental image of somebody who's at the ready? I mean, uh, you know, waist girded, you're dressed for battle, ready to go. And your lamps burning. And you yourselves like, a, like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. It's not like, uh, I'll get back to you when I can, or I'll have my people so your people and we'll see if we can make an appointment. No, it's not that attitude at all. It's that they may open to him immediately. Verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. You see this state of being alert, being interested, checking the wind, as it were, checking what's going on. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. We all look forward to that time. Look at verse 38. And if he should come in the second watch, you see, uh, late at night, or come in the third watch, like in the early morning hours, not you know when, when you'd normally think you'd be sleeping, you see, and find them so blessed are those servants. Now, if you think about that, it means to be ready at all times, spiritually ready. We all need our sleep, and we all you know want to get that so we can function as physical human beings. But think about this spiritually. Whatever time it is, we should be ready. We should have been doing those things which keep us at the spiritual ready, our prayer and our study. Our meditation, those sorts of things. You heard about that the first time you ever hear, heard, went to a Church of God service. And you'll probably hear about that at every church service you ever attend. Because that's the tools of, of Christians. To pray and study and stay close to God. Look at verse 40. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So brethren, don't slumber. Don't be complacent. Stir up the Spirit with a willing heart, and your lamp will be full of oil. Your light will be bright, and you will be ready when the bridegroom comes. 